Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, July 25th, 2021. Today, Pastor Rod preaches the second message in our sermon series in the summer entitled Faith in Action, Lessons Learned from Old Testament Saints. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Today, we're in our second sermon on our Faith in Action series, Lessons Learned from Old Testament Saints. And today we're looking at the characters of Abraham, Sarah, and their son, Isaac. You may remember that we are taking these names out of Hebrews chapter 11, where these saints of old were commended for their faith in God. So they believed God, but they acted on that belief in God. And that's what's caught my attention here. They acted on something that they didn't have the full picture of yet. In fact, it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen that all these people were still living by faith when they died. And you know, I just kind of think that's the kind of faith we want to have. We want to be living in faith in God until the day we die. Having faith in him no matter what happens, no matter whether our questions get answered or whether we see the picture come into completion the way we think it should or not, doesn't matter. We want to end our lives completely trusting God. Trusting God to the very end, no matter what, that is faith in action. Now, today we're going to be looking at one of the greatest tests of faith that I think, humanly speaking, we could ever imagine. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. What has been your greatest test of faith in life? Like, what has happened in your life where maybe it's caused you to wonder or ponder about God and whether you can really trust Him with your life? Anne and I have uh, friends of ours that years ago when we lived in Bolivia, they lost their 18-year-old son to a very bizarre accident. Uh, he got electrocuted. One of these situations you would just never expect. He goes out to wash the dog and he hooks up a metal chain that's chained the dog to the bracket of the air conditioner and the wire on the inside that was connected to the air conditioner and the electricity ran through that, through the air conditioner, through the bracket, through the chain and to him and he died. I mean, just an absolutely horrible death. And the father of that man, good friends of ours, He said a few months later, as he'd been journeying through the loss of his son, he said these words, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. And he was referencing Psalm 73. That was a powerful moment because who couldn't empathize with that thought for that man and his wife? So what have you gone through in life that has maybe caused your foot to almost slip from the path of faith? Today we're looking at one of the most difficult stories in the Bible to understand. And it's the story of God asking Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him as a, as a sacrifice. But before we dive into that particular part of Abraham's story, we need to do a bit of an overview of Abraham and Sarah, of their lives, so that we understand uh, when we get to this point in the story. If you want to read all of this in detail, Genesis chapter 12 to 22 takes you through the story of Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews 11 highlights three specific events in Abraham and Sarah's life that they were commended for their faith for. So we want to look at those. Uh, The first one, Abraham obeyed God, and he went to a land that God would show him. The second one, Sarah believed God when she was told she would have a child in her old age. And the third one, Abraham obeyed God when he was asked to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. So Hebrews says this about the first act of faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in that promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. 
the second one about Sarah, uh, Hebrews 11.11 says, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And the third one is Abraham obeyed God about this sacrifice. And it says this in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death, from death. So, in this story, of Abraham and Sarah, uh, there's 11 chapters, and we're, we're going to try to walk you through it really quickly here, uh, especially the first two um, acts of faith, because we want to get to that third one and look at it a little more closely. So what's happened in Abraham and Isaac's, uh, Abraham and Sarah's life? First of all, you need to know that I'm going to be using the names Abraham and Sarah, even though at the beginning of the story, they're called Abram and Sarai. But eventually in the story, God changes their name to Abraham and Sarah, which we will see. But I'm just going to refer to them by those common names that we know them as. God tells them to go to this land that he will show them, and they obey. And it's because of that obedience that comes this promise in chapter 12 to Abraham about becoming this great nation, even though Abraham has no children. So hold on to the word promise as we look at a number of passages of Scripture. Genesis 12 puts it like this. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, from your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they went out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So what we see here is that he obeyed the command of God. Uh, and with that obedience came this, great, this promise that he would be a great nation one day. Now, they're 75 years old, or at least Abraham is, and Sarah about 10 years younger. So in other words, they're getting on in years how is God going to fulfill this promise? Because to this point, they have no children. Now, chapters 12 to 14 give us a little bit of insight into Abraham's life and his faith as he journeys along. It's a bit of a bumpy road, uh, like all of our journeys in faith. Um, they live through a famine, and they have to go into Egypt to find food. And while they're in Egypt, Abraham's afraid they're going to kill him and take his beautiful wife. So he, he puts forth that she uh, is his sister, which technically she's a half-sister, but it's deception. It's a lie. And uh, to be honest, this does not go well. He does it more than one time. Uh, he does it once in Egypt, and then he does it once with the king of, a, um, king of Bimelech. And this is just bizarre because he didn't learn his lesson. So we kind of see that Abraham at this point isn't fully trusting God with his life. He's trying to take matters into his own hands, and it doesn't turn out well. He's a bit of a slow learner. And if you don't believe me, you need to go read Genesis. The next significant moment comes in chapter 15, where God speaks to Abraham in a vision, and Abraham speaks back to God. God says it, Abraham, don't worry. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. 
And Abram, he starts to lament. He says, yes, God, I know you've already told me you're going to make me into a great nation, but God, I don't have a son yet. So everything that I have I've possessed, everything, God, that you have blessed me with is going to go to my servant. And so God says this to him in Genesis 15. Then the word of the Lord came to him, to Abraham. This man, the servant, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God tells Abraham to look at the stars in the sky and to count them. And then he says to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And then he says, the text says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So his belief uh, was deemed righteous by God. So again, what we see here is that we have a promise that he will become this great nation, but Abraham's puzzling over this. How is it going to happen? Because I don't have a child. God, are you just speaking words or are you really going to come through here? Now, we all know what that's like when a person promises you something and then they don't come through with it and you begin to wonder if you can trust the person, right? And I can't help but think that maybe this is going on inside of Abraham's mind. How is this going to happen when they have no children? How, God, will your promise come true? Now, Abraham, it says, believe God. And so something must have happened here on this second encounter where Abraham trusted God. Uh, when God reassured him that this promise would come to be. Some time now goes on and there's still no children. And so Sarai comes up with this plan and she says to her husband, I have my maidservant here, Hagar. Um, why don't you take her and sleep with her? And maybe, perhaps, I can build this plan of God's through her. And as you all know, that's not a good idea. Nor is it God's plan. We can't fabricate it. We can't manipulate it. We can't do it. It would be God's promise, not the way in which they would come up with a plan of how to help God out, so to speak. You know, here's my idea. Well, from that union came Ishmael. Uh, Abraham's first son, note that, but this was not the son of promise. Another 20 years pass, and Abraham still has not had the promised child, and God again meets him and renews his covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17. It says this, when Abraham was 95, pardon me, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. For the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now, Abram has already heard this before. Maybe just a little more detail, a little more clear, but God goes on. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her, not your maidservant, but by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, kings of peoples will come from her. Abram, or Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to me, a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael 
might live under your blessing. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. So this is kind of interesting. Why is it that Abraham would actually counter and say to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing? What's he getting at? Well, I think what he's getting at is it makes sense. I mean, God, I have this son. Isn't this good enough to meet the plan? Because it's a whole lot easier to tell people that I'm going to be blessed through my son that I've already had through natural means. It's a little bit harder to say, yeah, um, my wife who's 90 is going to have a child within a year. But then again, the promise of God is greater than human logic. Genesis 18 records for us three visitors who come to see Abraham and Sarah, and it seems at first that they don't really realize who these visitors are. But as the story unfolds, they realize that these are angelic beings and that they're actually encountering the Lord himself. Here's how it reads. Genesis 18. Then he, Abraham, ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk in the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, while they ate he, stood near, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Like, who would fault Sarah for having, having this kind of reasoning? We get that, and we would laugh too. Abraham pretty much did the same thing. He laughed earlier on. But I love the honesty which uh, Scripture records for us here as to our human experience with this kind of thing. Sarah gets called out for laughing at the Word of God. Uh, then she's afraid when she's called out because she's been caught. So what does she do? Well, she does what any one of us does. She thinks on her feet, and she makes a lie. And she says, I did not laugh, but the angel of the Lord does not let her off the hook. And he says, yes, you did laugh. To that, Sarah does not counter. Why? Well, because the truth has been brought into the light. I think that this is a significant turning point in Sarah's own believing of God. You know, to this point in the story, the encounters between God have been with Abraham. uh, And then probably Sarah hearing it from Abraham. But now this is her own encounter. And I think that this is a turning point from doubt to faith, that she owns for herself what the author of Hebrews picks up on uh, in verse 11 when he says, And by faith even Sarah, who is past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. I think that this was her turning point, that that's how come she got to that place of believing and trusting God in that matter. Now this brings us finally to chapter 21 of Genesis, which is, the birth of this promised child. I mean, years have gone by. 25. And it says this. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. 
Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now the name Isaac means he laughs. And I think that that captures the experience. Now we read this very glibly. Uh, we just kind of, oh yeah, that's right. She's 75 and she gives birth because God's hand is in it. And we just kind of accept it. But honestly, if every 75-year-old woman in our church, if we were to look at them, would you think that would be possible? Of course not. This is like mind-blowing miraculous well beyond the years of giving birth and God allows it to happen. So at this point in the story, we think, oh, great. This is a great story. It's resolved. The promised child has come about. Uh, I love these kind of stories when they end well. I mean, the people trust God. They move to a new land. Um, they trust God's promise, and eventually the son comes. God fulfills his promise. Abraham and Sarah live happily ever after. God blesses the world through their offspring. The story is over. The mission is completed. The promise is fulfilled. However, there's Genesis chapter 22, and it's the final chapter in this story. God calls on Abraham one more time, and there would be one more test of faith. And this time, it would be the greatest test of his faith. It is his final exam before he graduates into the hall of faith. Genesis 22 tells the story like this. Read it with me. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will pro provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorn, by its horns. Uh, he went on, he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Wow, that is an amazing story. Hebrews 11 summarizes it like this. By faith, Abraham, when tested, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, Abraham, who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Do you see the emphasis right here in, in the summary in Hebrews 11? Abraham had only one son. Well, his one and only son that he loved because he was the son of promise. And that was the one that God was asking him to sacrifice. And the obviousness going through Abraham's mind is, how is this going to work? How am I going to be a great nation if I sacrifice my son? So the point is that this is an incredible demonstration of, of Abraham's faith. He's come to a place where he no longer questions God. He obeys God. He might have questioned God in the beginning, but by now he just simply obeys God, believing that God somehow would provide. Not, not knowing how, maybe reckoning or reasoning in his mind that God could raise him, but not knowing how God would provide, but trusting God completely that he would provide. God tested Abraham and Abraham passed the test. But what was God actually testing? I mean, why make such an extreme request, especially seeing uh, that God in the Old Testament multiple times, numerous times, he condemned the wicked practice of child sacrifice by the pagan nations around Israel. So why make this request? We may not know with 100% certainty the answer to that question. Um, it's the only time in Scripture that this is ever requested. And in the end, God provides a ram, so in other words, it didn't really happen. Um, the sacrifice was never intended to actually be a sacrifice because it was a test. So it wasn't God's intention that Isaac would kill, or that Abraham would kill his son Isaac. It was a test. What seems to be evident here is that there could be no greater test given this situation. So God maybe could have tested him in other ways, but this would be the ultimate test. And it's the ultimate test of knowing Abraham, where does your allegiance lay? Is it with me as God, or is it with your son, the son that you love so dearly? Did Abraham love God, or did he just love God's promise? So this test was about loving God above all else. It, it's something we talk about, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. But quite frankly, do we ever stop and wonder if it's being tested? And if it was tested like God tested Abraham here, how would we fare? If Abraham had allowed his heart, his heart to go in a direction of idolizing his son, if this truly was standing in the way of his relationship with God, it wouldn't be hard to see how that could happen. After so many years of waiting, we could see that he might idolize his son. But we know that idolatry destroys. And so God's test ultimately would save both Abraham and Isaac from an inevitable destructive relationship, which wouldn't produce the outcome that God wanted. 
Why? Because the heart of Abraham had to be completely undivided in his love towards God if the promise was going to accomplish its goal. You shall have no other gods before me, God has said. Timothy Keller has written a book called Counterfeit Gods, and he explores this theme more fully, and I really encourage you, if you haven't read that book, get a copy, read it. It's worth it. And while we've been talking about how God could ask such a question as this, we also have to look for a moment at how Abraham could have gone through with it. I mean, last week we looked at Noah, and he was commanded to go build an ark. I would way rather go build an ark and obey that command of God than this one. And as a parent, we can't even imagine how this is possible. I remember when I became a father for the first time. Little Ryan Stewart Heppel came into the world on September 6, 1996. You know, at that time, something happened in my heart. I was forever changed in this regard. Emotionally speaking, I was ushered into a new understanding of my Heavenly Father and His love for His Son and also His love for me as His adopted child. Uh, because for the first time, I experienced that sense of, of unconditional love. It was innate now within me. Unconditional love for my own son. And that connected a dot for me to God's love for me. Now in this story, we also need to connect some dots here. Between the sacrifice that Abraham was making of his son with the very fact that God the Father has made a sacrifice of his son. There are a lot of parallels between these two stories. I want to just pick up on four of them. Look at the language, your son, your one and only son, the son whom you love. That sound familiar? Yeah, that's New Testament language for how God speaks about Jesus. By the way, Abraham had two sons. But this is the son of promise, which means he's one of a kind. So when it says you're one and only son, that actually means that he's one of a kind. It's not necessarily that you only have one son. It's that you have no other son like this son. This is a unique son by nature of his birth. Again. Jesus is the one and only Son of God, who is unique also by his birth. This language is not accidental. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Secondly, go to the region of Mount of Moriah and sacrifice him on a mountain there. Um, where was that? It was actually Zion in Jerusalem. And so that would have been just a few hundred feet or meters away from the place where Jesus would ultimately give his life on Calvary and uh, as, as an offering for us, right? So there's a parallel there. Uh, Isaac carried his own wood, and Jesus carried his own cross. Isaac's life was laid down, and God provided a substitute. Jesus laid down his life, but he was our substitute. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, we read that as if the father has no feeling at all, just gave his son that it didn't tear his heart out as much as it would have torn our heart or Abraham's. But that's not true. Abraham was a picture of what that would look like. God's was the real thing. For Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. That's why God did it, and it tore his heart out. This is the love of God that is demonstrated for you and I. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was a demonstration of God's love. You know, it's Jesus alone who makes sense of this story for us. Because I can look to him on that cross and I can know how much God loves me. He loves me that much. And if he loves me that much, then this whole issue of idolatry comes into play. 
Because what in this world could stand between me and my love for God? But there are many things. There are many things that we're tempted to allow to get between us and God. And children can be one of them, as it was the example in this story. So the question I'm asking is, what, what is your Isaac that God is asking you to lay down today? Something in your life that you believe is the very thing that gives your life significance. What is that something? Because whatever it is, that's an idol. And like Abraham, God will test us. Do we love God or do we just love the things that he gives us? The things that we have put our heart toward. You know, I had an aha moment in my own life when I was a young father with my own kids. A moment where I had to trust God with their lives. When our son Jonathan was two years old, he had a serious accident. He jumped off a bridge. Well, he didn't jump. He fell off a bridge. But I didn't push him. But nor did I have his hand in my hand. And I lived with that guilt for a long time. We lived in Bolivia. And it was a remote area where we lived. And there was a suspension bridge that went across a river called the Parapati River. That means the river of death. It was suitably named. Anne and I, along with Ryan, who was four, and Jonathan, two, and our two-week-old Brendan, along with friends, were crossing over this bridge to go spend a day at a camp with our friends. But just over halfway across the bridge, when I had let Jonathan go for my hand, he hit a board, and he slipped through the cables, and he fell 22 feet onto the rocky shoreline below. At that moment, I put my leg up on top of that cable to jump over when I realized if I jump, I will die. So I ran to the end of the bridge and underneath, and I picked him up. And in that moment, I had no idea when I picked him up, his body was limp. He didn't even whimper. There was blood gushing from his head, and I just cried out to God with all my life. Save him! Save him, Lord! I was crying out from the depth of my heart. I could hear Anne's voice behind me. Is he alive? Is he alive? I didn't know. I didn't know if he was alive. All I knew is I had to get up and get him to a clinic, and we were in a remote town. To make a long story short, God spared Jonathan's life. <sighs> he was a bit broken and a bit bruised, but other than that, he was fine. I'll leave the story and the details around that story there to make this point. I had always thought up until then that I would somehow be able to protect my children. You know, as the heart of a parent, you have that, right? Somehow we think we will be fast enough, strong enough, that we would never let any harm or whatever come to our kids. And even though in our head we know that that's not rational, we know that that's not logical, somehow in our heart we feel this. It was sometimes, sometime later, months later, I was taking communion. And, and I realized that what I had done was I had held on to my kids as if they were mine as if I was their owner and creator and savior, and I wasn't. I was a steward of my kids, and I had to lay them down. You know, it was hard to say to God, I commit my kids to you. They're yours. They're not mine. We shouldn't wonder if God loves us. We should wonder about how much God loves us. My point here is this, if we can understand that God actually allowed his son to die, that we might be made right with him and understand that love, then that fuels us to say, okay, God, I will give you my children because I know that you love me no matter what happens. So I ask you today, what in your life is God asking you 
to lay down. I'm going to close in prayer. And there's no multiple questions to ponder today. It's just this one. What is your Isaac that you're holding on so tightly to that God is asking you to lay down? And as I pray, I want you to have this mental picture in your mind or you can go ahead and actually physically do it. I want you to hold your hand as a closed fist like this. And as I pray, I want you to open your hand as a symbol of you releasing to God whatever it is that is that thing that God is speaking to you about that stands between you and him. The thing that you've put all your hopes and dreams in, the thing that you hold on more dearly as if it gives you life when it doesn't. Whatever it might be, you need to open your hand and give it to God. And then, and then only, will we be able to live rightly with that thing that God has given us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we pray in this moment, we recognize the fact that you are our creator and you are our redeemer. You are the one who has come into this world to rescue us from our sins. And sin was so serious that it meant the taking of the life of Jesus Christ. He laid it down that he might take it back up again, that he might offer us everything we need in life. And today we hold out our hands as a symbol of the fact that what we hold on to so tightly as if it's ours and it's not, we open our hand to you. We acknowledge and commit to you that thing that you're speaking to us about. We give it over to you that we might live rightly with you, trusting you completely with everything in life, with even the things we don't know or understand. We live by faith to the very end no matter what. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Well, God bless you, and we'll see you next Sunday as we carry on in our Faith in Action sermon series. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.